You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am here with my amazing, talented co-host, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And Dr. (laughs) Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Okay. I don't know what to do to counteract that, Carrie. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fancy dance. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but I'm pretty much a professional. Of course. Uh, yeah, you say that when you say that in Las Vegas, what does that really mean, Carrie? You know, that's a, a really good question. I think I should probably plead the fifth to that. <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. So what have y'all been up to this weekend? Well, Carrie, spill the beans, Miss Decorator. I already started putting up Christmas lights. I realized that this is being recorded two weeks before Thanksgiving. But as I pointed two out to half. my husband this morning, I saw the uh, one of my neighbors has a lit wreath up already, which means officially I am not the first person in the neighborhood. And so um, so that makes it all okay. And I won't actually turn anything on until Thanksgiving weekend, but it does make me feel better to get a lot of the stuff thrown up so that I don't have to think about it nearly as much when I'm cooking up all of the foods. So I have to say, like, I am the least decorative of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not very decorative either, Susan. But we we do have our Christmas lights on our house because we have a, a a service that comes and does uh-huh. it, and it costs so much to do the service. Like I want to get as many, much time as I can out of it. So yeah. we we do have our Christmas lights on outside, but they're they're white, so it's not like you're red and green or something like that. Yeah. So it's just it's just nice and pretty and you know lit, and you can see the little deer outside. We don't have like our Christmas deer out, but our you know the deer in our neighborhood. <laughs> Like real live deer? Yeah. In Texas? Oh my goodness. There are so uh, many deer. Like if I went outside my front yard, there's probably like two or three in my front yard right now. Do they eat all your flowers all the time? Do, they they do. You have to be, you have to plant certain things that the deer don't eat. Let me tell you, that's what I was just about to say. We have all these, had all the, had all these beautiful pansies planted in front of our house. And they were planted for, oh, about a week. They planted them like two weeks ago. They were there for a whole week. Then yummy, my yummy in the tummy. And they were like, like the square, like that they had planted in the ground was like pulled up and pulled. Like there was, there's one pansy out of about like maybe 35 plants that were planted. The deer we, came and ate all We the can pansies. do things like that in our backyard because it's fenced and the deer don't, I mean, they could jump our fence and we've had a deer in our backyard. I mean, we've lived here, what, I think four years. And I think we've had a deer in our backyard like two or three times, but in the front yard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They love hostas. It's like salad for them. I can't keep any hostas. I eat those up. They're crazy. I mean, to be fair, the only backyard animal that I have heard reported besides the occasional coyote is a mountain lion in our neighborhood. Yeah, I was going to say, you had a mountain lion in your backyard. I'd much rather have deer you're, than eat You're my all fences. worried about our deer. I'd rather have a deer over a mountain lion. <laughs> I'd rather have the mountain lion eat me, not the, not the 
deer eating the pansies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're careful about letting our small dog out in the backyard whenever there's yeah. any reports of anything in the neighborhood because our our dog is the size of a Scooby snack. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, so we tend to say, be careful. I have no, back to the decorations. I have like zero decorations up, but you guys have now made me feel so guilty that I'm thinking I'm going to go out to my magnolia tree and start cutting some branches off to decorate my at least my table with magnolias or something. Oh, how That's pretty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice having magnolia trees. My, in fact, my daughter, when she was about 12, she came in and I was putting magnolias and I was putting candles on our, our dining room table. And she goes, Mama, does daddy know what you're doing with those leaves? <laughs> she thought it was crazy. I'm like, people actually decorate with this, Haley. So it was kind That's of funny. I had a magnolia tree when I was in college. Yeah, they're pretty. I really like yeah. them a lot. That's cool. That's cool. So I'm going to have to get on the decorations, it sounds like, though, unfortunately. <laughs> Send pictures. Uh, let's let's do a question, okay? All right. That's good. All right. So, hi. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for over a year for our second baby. It took us eight months with our first and have been tracking my cycle and noticed that my luteal phase was about eight days. Um, should ovulate on day 20 of 28. Even with the short luteal phase, I was even to get, I was able to get pregnant and have a two and a half year old boy. We had a fertility workup and everything with me and my husband seems normal. I am on my second month of 2.5 milligrams letrozole and I am ovulating even later. Everything I read says letrozole should lengthen my luteal phase, but this month it has shortened to six days. Any idea why this would happen? No, but I know a real easy fix for that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, why? I mean, there's, I mean, some people don't really believe in a luteal phase. I mean, we know that you have to have, you know, 10 to 12 days, but some people can have shorter ones and still do okay. I mean, for my patients, I would probably just put somebody on progesterone. It doesn't, it's like Carrie has said before, it's like dumping water in the ocean. You can't get too much of it. You can only get too little. And for most people, that really kind of corrects the problem and, and makes it uh, better. I mean, as far as causes, exercise, I guess is the first one that I would think of. And you guys might want to add to this, but you know, if you're exercising a bunch, um, if you gained weight, sometimes that can shorten your luteal phase and eventually you can get to the point where you don't even ovulate. Um, but barring those types of things, um, you know, really it's a pretty easy fix with progesterone. I'd make sure your prolactin level and your TSH is normal as well. I would agree with all those things. The other thing is when you are starting progesterone, you didn't mention that you were doing a trigger shot or that you were doing inseminations. And the monitoring. One issue, monitoring, yeah. The the one issue that we sometimes see with people starting progesterone after they ovulate is that you may not actually be ovulating when you think you are. And starting the progesterone without a real clear monitoring in place can sometimes cause more angst than actually help. Um, and so monitoring is really helpful for that. Sometimes doing an IUI or, or at the very least a trigger so you know what is happening when can be helpful. I would also recommend making sure that you've had your ovarian reserve um, evaluated. Yeah, that's and estradiol and AMH. Um, whenever I have new patients who come in and talk to me about short luteal phases, my little spidey sense starts getting on board with that I'm worried that they may be having some diminished ovarian reserve as well. Yeah. Because we tend to see shortening of cycles as people get older and as they have diminished ovarian reserves. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Good deal. Good question. Good question. All right. Thanks. So today we are going to talk about the dreaded ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> so so Abby, what what exactly is OHSS? So OHSS is really unique to patients that have infertility and typically are on infertility medications. And 
I think people kind of, um, it, it's basically where um, fluid leaks from your blood vessels for a short period of time, a week to two weeks, it leaks out into your body space. And really that's what causes most of the problems. It causes you to have a lot of fullness. Um, in the extreme, if you have a bunch of fluid in your abdomen, it can be really painful. It can also cause compression of your stomach. You can have nausea, vomiting. Sometimes it, the fluid can even get in your lungs. And that's really unusual. I mean, it happens sometimes, but it's really unusual. And really, when we talk about hyperstimulation, most of the time, we're really talking about mild hyperstimulation. So there's like mild, moderate, and severe. And severe is really what people kind of read about and fear, because that's really the, the level it has to get to before you would be put in the hospital or have significant ramifications from it. So in addition to mild, moderate, and severe, and Carrie may not even remember this, because <laughs> she's so I'm young. aspersions being made to my age. We are. We She's are. Such a youngster. But back in the day, we used to also have early and late hyperstimulation syndrome. Oh, no. I remember that. I was, before, remember that? I My, was before the I pre-dolls. remember day one of fellowship and I walked in and we had two people in the ICU with late onset hyperstimulation syndromes. Yeah. This is something I haven't seen in like literally a decade. So, Carrie, what, what is early versus late hyperstimulation? So... Early hyperstimulation is something that you can begin to see right around the time of retrieval and probably one of the the two big tick, tip-offs of something's coming are one, astronomically high estrogen levels and follicle numbers, and two, when you go in for retrieval or even before, you can already see free fluid floating those ovaries around the pelvis. So early happens before you've really gotten any sort of trigger or the presence of any sort of HCG. Whereas late happens um, when someone either has already gotten an HCG trigger or when they're pregnant because hyperstimulation is very dependent on levels of HCG. And so if you're pregnant and your levels are going up and up and up and up, then it persists and goes on and on and on. But it doesn't show up until a little bit later. And that's that's actually the more dangerous of the two because with an early hyperstim, if you can see it coming, you can say, okay, we're going to do a freeze-all. We're not going to get you pregnant. We'll get, we'll get into all that. We'll get yeah. into all that. <laughs> okay, I'll stop talking then for a minute. <laughs> not for long. So so with that light, late hyperstimulation syndrome, I would say as a lot of us are doing freeze-all cycles and things like that, we, are, we see that less and less. Like I said, I, I haven't seen somebody with that in a long time. And I would also like to mention that um, most of what we're going to talk about today is with IVF or in vitro fertilization, but it is possible to get hyperstimulation yeah. syndrome um, when you're taking oral meds. I think it's more likely if you're taking Clomid than Letrozole. Um, again, not something that we see very often, but mm -hmm. I, I, I more often see people who come to my clinic who that's happened to them elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and then we're we're working to prevent it. I I don't use much clomid. I use mostly letrozole nowadays. But yes, Carrie. Nerd alert! You it is not one hundred percent limited to IVF cycles because one place you can get it is if you have an FSH receptor defect and it's just constitutively on, and mm -hmm. so you get it without medication stimulation. So that's really rare. I've had one case in the entire time that I've been doing REI. So that is um, nothing our listeners really need to worry about. <laughs> that is nothing you need to worry about. That's the But for completeness sake, and yeah. because I'm a nerd and random factoids are my thing, that would be a random factoid. The other thing is that it's not solely with IVF. It's more related to the injection cycles. And so we used to do a ton of IUIs with full gonadotropins, meaning you do injections and then do the IUI. 
A lot of people have shied away from that because of the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation, because if you end up with a ton of follicles, then then you are in a, a bad news situation, both for multiple pregnancies, as well as a higher risk of hyperstimulation. But I would say usually the people that get really sick that get hospitalized, in my experience, are people that have had like E2s, estrogens of 4,000, 5,000, and they get triggered with auto drill and they do a fresh transfer. So I think mm-hmm. the big thing that's really changed, that's really, I mean, I can't remember the last person I put in, in the hospital for hyperstimulation syndrome, but I think the two big things, really seismic shifts in our field are number one, most people don't do fresh transfers anymore. And that's mainly because it's helpful for the baby. The baby has a better outcome, we believe. Um, and also we're able to genetically test embryos. So kind of about that same time, people started, or at least in our practice, we started tending to do more triggers, like the last shot that the patient would get would be Lupron. And I don't know that we really know the mechanism as to why Lupron shuts patients down so well, but it does. It makes a huge difference. I mean, now we can get people with pretty high estrogen levels. They get a Lupron trigger and don't get a transfer and they usually do pretty well. So let's talk a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about prevention and then we'll talk a little bit about treatment. So um, what are what are some things that we, we already started alluding to some of these? What are some of the things that we as physicians can do to help prevent hyperstimulation syndrome from happening in our patients? Don't do not have a drill trigger. That's the biggest trigger in any form. Yeah, Navarro, uh, like all of them. Yeah. Right now. I mean, I don't know what it is, but that just even even just a smidge every now and then we'd be like, well, we think she needs she she did this Lupron trigger, but she needs just a little Avadril. I don't care how much Avadril you give, whatever you give, it just sets it so, into motion. So it, even if you have a dual trigger HCG and Lupron, you're going to be at a higher risk than if you yes. just had a Lupron trigger. Absolutely. What, what are other things that we can do to help prevent somebody from getting hyperstimulation? Figure out who's at high risk from the beginning. Think about your 26-year-old PCOS patient with a follicle count of 30 and do a mild stim on them. Like don't mm-hmm. don't yeah. push as hard as you might in someone who's four, even 40 with that follicle count mm-hmm. um, because you don't want to have those crazy high estrogen levels without a real concrete plan of knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So lower doses of gonadotropins can be helpful in certain cases. Now think of anything else. Well, and then just no fresh transfer. Fresh transfers, because a lot of times we'd see people that would, you know, they'd be fine for a while. And then before they even had a positive pregnancy test, they'd be like, I'm feeling really bad. Feel so I'm feeling good. really bloated. And almost always, and actually almost always they were pregnant. And, and it, what we would do, it's kind of funny. You could actually use their ascites fluid and you could dip it, dip it, and you get a positive pregnancy test with that. So we'd be able to tell them oh. before they left with a, we dip their ascites fluid. Oh my awesome. goodness. I didn't know that one. That's a <laughs> yeah, new one. Abby. I mean, the other, the other thing you can do is in those cases, it can be really helpful to start someone on birth control pills preemptively. Mm-hmm. Um, before their cycle and do that lead in. Like a lot of times we kind of avoid birth control pills for any any longer than a couple of weeks in someone who's got decreased ovarian reserve. But for someone who's got a really high follicle count, it can be kind of beneficial to do that leading into it. Right. So I'm thinking of some things, but the things that I'm thinking of are things that I'm like, we have a really high estrogen level. And I think this is kind of going into treatment, not like late treatment, like you're sick, sick, but 
Okay, we're we're in an IVF cycle. You've had an amazing response and you have lots of follicles and you have an estrogen level of 5000 and um you know, we want to get those little eggs. What are what are some of the medicines that we can use around the time of trigger retrieval and into that first week post retrieval that might have and some impact in reducing risk? Yeah, Dostonex slash carbobaline has been shown in some studies to be effective. I personally don't find it very effective, but that is something you could try if you don't, because really there's nothing else you can really do. It's almost like a cold. You just sort of have to treat the symptoms if somebody gets hyperstimulated. So it doesn't hurt to do that. Just we found that it was pretty expensive and we didn't see a lot of great results from it. Um, if you gave somebody a dose of, or several doses of carbogaline or Dostonex. So I, I use the carbogaline. I also will use antagonist. So we'll do antagonist for about five to seven days, depends on how high that estrogen level is um, after retrieval. And I've also recently started adding um, letrozole. Um, Mm -hmm. You can start letrozole at trigger and been having great results with that. And that helps luteolysis happen um, faster Hmm. after retrieval and has really seemed to help us out quite a bit. How long, do you you get, how long do you do it? Do you do it for like seven days or? I do it for a week. Yeah. Yeah. One five or five? Um, five. Okay. Yeah. We do a lot of cabergoline. We do a lot of the um, the antagonist to, mm-hmm. to shut things down. Um, we have found actually that since we've been doing freeze-alls and granted, we've we've been watching this for a long time because my partner, Bruce Shapiro, did, did a lot of the original freeze-all stuff. So he was watching this for many, many years before anybody else really carried or believed that he had anything. Yeah. Um, and and so what we found is that you can really drive those estrogen levels quite high with without the same impacts when you are taking things away. Because there's controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, which is what we do in any kind of ovulation induction cycle, you know, lesser when you're doing letrozole and clomid, more when you're doing gonadotropins. Um, and then there's hyperstimulation where it's, it's essentially controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, but people are feeling the effects of it. And so, um, so a lot of it is really good counseling ahead of time and saying, you're going to feel this, you're going to notice this and, and telling them what are the severe features, but knowing in a, a stim, especially in those younger PCOS patients or people with lots of follicles that even when you're not hyperstimulating, you're gonna feel super bloated because your yeah. ovaries have gone from the size of lemons to the size of, or limes to the size of large grapefruits. Mm-hmm. That's what. I always recommend that people don't go to work the next day after an egg retrieval. I, you know, I remember the day when I had egg retrievals and I remember how uncomfortable I was and kind of back to what you were saying. I usually tell patients, it's like, you know, your ovaries are enlarged. And even if you don't have fluid in there, even if you're mildly hyperstimulated or even moderately, you're going to feel uncomfortable because it's like trying to stick your size eight foot in a size five shoe and walk around all day like that. Cause that's what your ovaries are feeling. They're being crushed, you know, mushed up in there and they're rubbing against your abdominal wall and you just don't feel good. And so I think it's really important to kind of rest at home and take it easy, drink plenty of fluids and that sort of thing. Cause you're just not going to feel good if your ovaries are big. And to a certain degree, everybody, whether you're taking Clomid or letrozole or injectables or whatever, everybody is hyperstimulated, but mostly for most people, it's mild hyperstimulation, occasionally moderate, and, you know, rarely now, um, severe hyperstimulation. So so what are some of the symptoms somebody should be watching for if they're, they're worried that they may be at risk for hyperstimulation? 
So vomiting, um, and I usually tell people if they, if you feel like you have a GI bug a day or two later and you're, you start to vomit, come see us first because I worry more that it's related to um, hyperstimulation syndrome, shortness of breath. And, you know, to a certain degree, when your ovaries are enlarged, it's a little bit hard to get a deep breath just because you're, everything's kind of pushed up. But if you're truly like gasping for air or really short of breath, those are two really big warning signs. So nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, really dark urine. Um, if you pee and you feel like you're drinking lots of water and you have a really dark urine, that's a sign that your body's trying to, that the, the water that you're drinking is going into the wrong space, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, abdominal girth. So measuring your the circumference of your waist. Now that's, that's sort of helpful. I mean, we expect that to be higher in just about everybody who's going through IVF because those ovaries are big. If it is rapidly increasing along with your weight, then that's something we pay attention to. It's not an end all be all like there's a degree to which we extend, we expect it to go higher. Um, but that is one thing that you can watch as well. You ever have pain in your legs? Definitely need to let us know you are at an increased risk of getting blood clots. Okay. And um, what do you usually, um, when you have people who are kind of on the edge of that hyperstimulation, what do you usually recommend them drinking? Do you want them drinking plain water or do you prefer them to be drinking other things? What are y'all's thoughts? I usually have them do a little bit of both because I think they need electrolytes because they're losing some electrolytes, but they also just need water too. So I usually say alternate Gatorade one time, water the next time. I mean, just really keep trying to drink the whole day if you can. And we usually have them monitor their urine, like catch their urine, give them something to catch their urine in, get a sense for how much urine output they have. Um, Cause that's really important too, to know, you know, cause you've got to make sure that the fluid, even though you're drinking the fluid in, you want to make sure it's going out through your kidneys and through your urine. Cause unfortunately with this condition, fluid can go leak out of your blood vessels and just leak in your abdomen. And so, but you still have to keep drinking no matter what we want you hydrated, no matter what. I like the liquid IV packets too. Um, you can, you know, buy them usually in the grocery store. They've got them in Costco and it's a packet that you add to 16 to 20 ounces of water. And, and it's got a lot of those electrolytes as well. It's not necessarily as sweet as the Gatorade is. Yeah. Um, So that's, we've got to, we always have some of those in our house. That's a great idea. I've never seen those before. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is getting sicker, okay, not necessarily that they need to be hospitalized, but what are what are some things that we can potentially do if somebody's getting some fluid in their belly to maybe make them feel better and get better a little faster? Well, if they have a lot of fluid in their belly and they're uncomfortable, like to the point that they just, they feel like they can't function, a lot of times we'll do a paracentesis and we usually do it in our office. And it's just amazing. You know, sometimes people can even have like two liters, liters of fluid in their abdomen. And after about the first 500 cc's, they're like, Wow, I feel, I feel really so, so much, much better. better. I feel I feel hungry. I'm ready to go get something to eat. You know, it's just just that pressure on your stomach just makes you feel bad and just hurts your abdomen. And really, most of the condition, I think, if you can stay hydrated, most of the condition is just the pressure that's so uncomfortable. So, whatever you can do to relieve that pressure really is helpful for patients. Yeah, I think there's some pretty good evidence that shows that even early paracentesis actually shortens the duration of hyperstimulation syndrome. Anything else, Carrie, that you can think of? So we we will occasionally give albumin by IV. And I know that the data is not amazing for it, but I swear patients walk out feeling so much better that uh, granted, I haven't had to do this more than maybe a handful of times in the past several, several years. But the times that I've had to do it, man, they feel better a lot faster. 
So we don't don't do it unless we absolutely have to, unless someone's really um, in a concerning place. But but we have found that to be helpful as well. And the other consideration too, just thinking about the care of a patient who's hyperstimulated, usually for us, once the patient gets to the point where they have a paracentesis, that usually means that their blood count is really high. So you still have the same amount of red blood cells circulating through your blood veins, but you don't have as much fluid. And so you're concentrated, your blood count's really concentrated and all these red blood cells are packed in really hard. So generally, we also like to put patients on blood thinners just for a period of a week to two weeks until their blood count, their hematocrit gets back down to normal again, because you are in a state, like Susan said, where you're at high risk for blood clots. And so preemptively, we do that. Usually we do it at the point that they, you know, that they need to have a paracentesis. That's the time we probably also need to give them a blood thinner. Good deal. Any other words of advice or things that we haven't covered? I would say before you launch into full-blown panic mode of, oh my gosh, I have hyperstimulation syndrome, actually talk with your physician because most people, like we said at the beginning, most people are going to have at least some mild hyperstimulation because that is built into what we're doing with the IVF cycle. And it's it's kind of built into the discomfort of the IVF cycle. your your docs are fully aware that this is one of the biggest risks we run. And so they're watching out for it. And they've also seen a lot of it most of the time. And so, I mean, even though I'm on the the younger end of things, I still, like, I remember a ton of cases getting hospitalized in the ICU for weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. And there is not a single doc out there who wants to be rounding on you in the hospital if they can mm-hmm. all avoid it. And so before you launch yourself down the freakout road, of hyperstimulation, talk with your physician, talk with the nurses that you're working with, because they have seen a lot of this and they're going to be able to have a better eye for, yeah, this is just normal post-IVF blah, as opposed to we're we're medically worried about you. Yeah. I, I would say kind of to tag on to that is that one, as we mentioned, most of these bad cases that we've talked about were cases that we saw years ago, not something that we see now because we've had so many differences in practice patterns within, Mm -hmm. you know, even the last decade. It's, it's huge. It's, it's huge. Um, especially going towards all the freezals that it it really is unusual. I mean, knock on wood, I can't remember the last person I hospitalized. I've had a couple of people I sent to the ER to get tapped and get mm-hmm. some IV hydration. And then after that, they're like, oh, we're good to go. You know, maybe spend one night, you know, that type of thing. But that's still rare. That's for me, that's maybe once a year type of thing. So it, it's pretty unusual. And so what we're talking about are, you know, things to be aware of, but not things to stress out over. Um, just like when your doctors talk about any type of procedure, there's there's risks to everything you do. There's risks mm-hmm. to walking out your door. And and we know that these are the risks. And we're always, you know, I always tell my patients, I'm like, your safety is number one, pregnancy is number two. And, you know, this this falls into the, we're always concerned about your safety. We're always thinking about that as as our top priority. So we're we're hyper aware of it. And mm-hmm. let your let your clinic, let your doctors know if you're not feeling well sooner than later, because this is something that we are better at treating. It's easier to treat sooner than later if it if it's what it is. And if you know you go in and they're like, oh, you know, you got some hyperstimulation, but it's not that bad. You know, that's that's good. That's good. You know, they're they're gonna you know if they're concerned about it being bad, then they're gonna kick it up a notch. Yeah, I think I just reiterate what you said. I mean, really now more times than not you're probably more worried about it than we are. So meaning 
that we're, it's just not likely to occur because of the way we do the stimulations and because of the medicines. But if you're at all concerned, call us, we'll bring you in, we'll weigh you, we'll check your blood count, we'll do all those things and just really make sure that that's, that's not the case. But generally now, the good news is hyperstimulation is kind of a thing almost of the past, at least severe hyperstimulation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, fantastic. To our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more and also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So make sure you follow and subscribe to stay updated on all things fertility. You can also visit us at fertilitydocsandcensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.